All right, good evening, everyone. So, uh, does anybody remember what we talked about last time I was here? The tongue, right, right. Taming the tongue. It was the first part, and maybe after that sermon, you probably left thinking, well, what can I say? Right? It kind of made it, it really narrowed it down. Because the definition of Lashon Hara, which is Hebrew, meaning the evil tongue, which is basically another way of saying slander and gossip, the definition for Lashon Hara is any spoken or written word or expression of the face or body that causes another person to be hurt in any way. So we're talking about rumors, we're talking about slander, we're talking about gossip, we're talking about uh, joking in such a way that hurts people's feelings. These are all things that are defined as Lashon Hara, even if it's true. And that's what really threw a lot of people. Even if it's true, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't say it or speak it. And people are like, well, what can I say? Well, that's what we're going to be dealing with. We're going to be dealing with exceptions to the rule. Exceptions to the rule. These are going to be ways to give you permission to speak about certain and necessary things. So the passage I want to begin with is James chapter 3, verse 6. And it says, And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of evil placed among our body parts. It pollutes the whole body and sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. So let's talk about some exceptions to the rule. And for that, I want to go to Romans, the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. And this is, what we're, this is the verse we're going to use to kind of springboard to talk about exceptions to the rule regarding Lashon Hara. This is going to show you when you are to speak and how you are to speak when it is necessary. So <clears throat> Romans 16 verse 17 says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep your eye on those who are causing divisions and stumbling blocks Contrary to the teachings that you learned, turn away from them. So basically, it's, it, it's, it's telling you to mark those or point those people out who cause division and discord. Those who are the gossipers, those who are the slanderers, those who are the troublemakers, those who are the fire starters, right? In Judaism, these people are called rasha, which means an evil person. So one, this is one who goes against God's word and goes against it willingly and deliberately uh, in an unrepentant and on a habitual basis. So those are the people that you are to mark out. And you know what? There's fakes among us all the time. A lot of times people call them hypocrites, but I don't care which church you go to. I don't care which Christian gathering you go to. You're always going to find people who are wolves in sheep's clothing. You're always going to find people there that claim to be one thing but live another. They claim to love Jesus. They claim to be a believer. They claim to be a Christian. They know how to speak Christianese. They can talk the talk, but they don't know how to walk the walk. And it seems like they're always the ones to start trouble, to start dissension and discord. We've even seen it here at Harvest House. Certain people that have come in among us, and they're the ones who are starting spreading rumors and gossip, and all of a sudden, the whole facility's in an uproar, and people are wanting to quit, and people are wanting to leave. All based on what somebody something that somebody has said. And we can't 
define that it's true. I mean, how many times, you know, have people been, have people been downstairs and uh, chums cheating at cards, I mean, chums playing cards with uh, everybody else. And all of a sudden, you know, there's just regular conversation. It's like, oh, man. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna really point anything anybody out. I'm not gonna name any names, but let's just say a certain person who has a hard time growing hair, evenly. I tell you, I think he's turning a blind eye. I mean, there's so many drugs going in and out of this place, and I think he's kind of turning a blind eye to it. Somebody's like, "Yeah, I've noticed that, man. I caught somebody doing this." Well, yeah, he must know about it. He must be like, "Why isn't he approaching these people?" And all of a sudden, you've got the entire table of people playing cards that's speaking against Aaron. And nobody knows if even it's true. It's just the way things appear. I can tell you as a leader, as a pastor, I'm the last person to know anything that's going on in the church. If something's going on, everybody else knows about it and talking about it, and I'm the last person to know. Well, didn't you know? Well, just because I'm the leader doesn't mean I'm going to know. You keep those things from the leader because you want it secret. <laughs> you don't want the pastor to know because then he'll have to deal with it. So... You know, when that kind of conversation starts taking place casually and maybe even innocently and maybe even it may come out of a genuine heart of concern because you're seeing stuff that's wrong and you want it to be corrected. You want attention to be brought to it, but maybe the way you're going about it is the wrong way. And all of a sudden a, a gossip campaign breaks out and discord starts sowing itself in Harvest House and in your church or in your community or whatever. And that's just not the right way to go about it. When that person starts talking, say, you know, brother, I, I understand your concern, but what you're saying, we don't know if it's true or not. Shut it down right there. Don't let it go any further. Say, you know what? Instead of talking about this, how about we go to Aaron with our concern because it's about him, right? Let's go to him and, and say, this is the way it appears to us. Is this the facts? Is this true? That would put an end to it right there. Or let's just say, you know what, instead of talking about Aaron, making assumptions about Aaron, or making assumptions about Harvest House and the people that come through here, why don't we just sit down and pray? Let's pray about this situation because it's bugging us so much. That would alleviate a lot of problems and a lot of troubles and a lot of issues. So Romans 16, 17 tells us to mark those who cause division among you. Point them out. And basically, a person that does this is one who knows God's word and goes against it willingly and deliberately in an unrepentant way and on a habitual basis. So, here are the exceptions to the rule when you are allowed to speak out about something that's going on. Number one, you must have seen it yourself. You must have personally witnessed the sin for yourself. Because Deuteronomy 19.15, and, and this verse is quoted several times in the New Testament, by two or three witnesses, let everything be established. You have to be an eyewitness to this. Not only do you have to be an eyewitness to this, you have to know what you saw is what you saw, and you're not assuming you saw something you really didn't see. So that's number two. You must be sure that what you saw is what you saw. That's number two. Proverbs 18, 17 says, The first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. So here's an example. Okay, you must have seen the sin yourself. I'm driving down the road. And all of a sudden, I pass this bar. Well, I do a double tape. And I see, you know, uh, I see, I'm, I'm picking on Aaron tonight. So let's see, I see Aaron stumbling out of the bar with another guy. And they're staggering and they're trying to hold up there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Aaron's drinking. Oh, Aaron's drunk. 
Oh my goodness. Is that really what I saw? Do I know that Aaron was drunk? I don't know the facts. All I did was see them stagger out of a bar. I don't know the context to the story. I have no right going to Chum or going to somebody else and say, oh, you'll never believe what I saw, or disguising it as a prayer request. I think we should pray for Aaron because I saw him stumbling out of a bar. Let's pray for him. That's just a Christian way of gossiping, disguising it as a prayer request. So maybe this is what really happened. What, what should I do in that situation? Yeah, go to Aaron. If it bothers me that much and it looks wrong and it looks bad, I should go to him in private and say, hey, hey, Aaron, I was driving by this bar the other day and I saw you staggering out with this other guy. I, I mean, it really looked like you were just like sloppy, wasted, drunk. Like, is that really what was happening? When in fact, he's a sponsor for somebody who called at the bar say, you know what? I fell off the wagon. I got blasted. I, I am in no condition to drive home. And maybe he's a bigger guy than Aaron. I know that's hard to imagine. But maybe he's a bigger guy than Aaron. And the weight of this guy drunk was causing Aaron to stagger as he was helping him out of the bar and helping him to his car. He was taking this guy home to sober up. And let's say that was the real story. Now that sin would have been upon me if I saw this and, and jumped to my own conclusions and started spreading around. Oh, Aaron's drunk. I saw him at a bar. He was staggering out with another guy. And that's not really what happened. So, one, you must have seen the sin for yourself. Number two, you must be sure that what you saw is what you saw. Number three, your motives must be pure. In repeating the story, your motives must be pure. It must not be for ridicule or revenge. It must not be for self-justification or to elevate your social status by making yourself appear better than the person you're talking about. Because... In Deuteronomy 32, 35, in Romans 12, 19, it says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. If you're looking for revenge, that's the wrong motives. If you're looking to make yourself look better, that's the wrong motives. Because you need to leave that vengeance part to God. Let him sort it out. Let him deal, deal with it. Number four, when relaying a story, it must be pure facts. No exaggerations, no embellishments, and no circumstantial evidence. Because circumstantial evidence, you can't prove. You can't say it's fact. It just looks that way, or it maybe helps your case a little bit because it kind of seems to weigh in in your favor. But it must be pure facts. No exaggerations, no embellishments. Number five, you must be willing to tell this story that you're talking about to the person's face. If that person was standing right there in front of you and everybody else was still around you, would you repeat the same story and tell it the same way that you're telling it? With the same facts, the same everything. you got to be willing to tell it to the person's face. So I'm just going to read this passage, and we're going to kind of deep dive into it a little bit later in this sermon. But in Matthew chapter 18, Yeshua, Jesus, gives us the protocol on how to deal with situations like this. So in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, it says, Now if your brother sins against you, tweet it out on Twitter. <laughs> Make a status update or a live Facebook video about what happened. No. Now if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault while you are with him alone. 
So you're to, you're to go to this person in private. If you're truly concerned, your motives are pure, you saw what you saw, you, you're not jumping to conclusions, you got all the facts, you got the story straight, you go to that person in private and say, look, we need to talk, I'm really concerned about you. I'm not here to judge you, I'm not here to slam you or to put you down, but you're my brother or sister in Christ and I saw this happen and we both know what happened and it's wrong and I just want to let you know I know about it and I'm here to help you. Let's see if we can work this out and straighten it out. So now if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault while you're with him alone. If he listens to you, you have won a brother. But if he does not listen, take with you one or two more. Why? Because the scripture says, with two or three witnesses, let everything be established. So you take two people that are unbiased, two people that may not know about the incident, two people that have no dog in the fight, if you will. But if he doesn't listen, take with you two or three more so that by every by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may stand. So it doesn't if. If it's just two people, it, it turns into a he said, she said, and there's nobody to prove what happened. But if you have a witness, two witnesses, they can say, no, that's not what he said. No, that's not what she said. Another good idea is to take your phone with you and record the conversation. I've had to do that as a pastor. When I had a beef with one of my congregants, or let's say they had a beef with about, about, about me, and instead of them coming to me, I say, I'm going to nip this in the bud. I'm going to go to them. I know they have a problem with me, and I'm going to settle it. I bring my wife with me or I bring another person with me and I sit down and I have that phone on record and I let them know they're being recorded and we hash it out. But if he refuses to listen to them, you and the two or three others you brought, tell it to Messiah's community. Other translations say tell it to the church. Now the context of this is tell it to the ruling body of elders of the church because every church, every body of believers had back in the day what's called a house of judgment, a Beit Deen. And it included the elders, the deacons, the pastor or the rabbi, whatever you want to call them. And they dealt with internal matters in the church so they didn't have to go to secular courts. And whatever, however they ruled, it would stand. So it said, bring it, tell it to the Messiah's community. And if he refuses to listen to even Messiah's community, let him be to you as a pagan and a tax collector. In other words, cut him off, excommunicate him. You're not being cruel, you're not being mean, doesn't give you permission to be nasty to the guy. It's just you don't fellowship with the person anymore. You just let them go their own way and do their own thing. And it says, bring them before the church. Again, that's not to put them in front of the entire congregation and say, this person did this. Oh, no, that's not what it is. All right, so those are the exceptions to the rule. Now, what if you hear Lashon Hurrah, gossip, slander, evil speech, and it may be somebody with good intentions trying to warn others. What do you do? Here's what you do. If you're listening to this and you happen to know that it is gossip and know that it is false, don't get up and walk away. Because even though you're not participating in it and you're walking away, you're still allowing it to continue. And walking away just means you're not participating. You're still allowing it to go on. So you stay right there. You don't walk away. If you know it's gossip or false, don't walk away, number one. Number two, let the story die with you. Determine that you're not going to repeat this, that it's not going to go any further than, than, than that situation right there. Number three, call that person out and say, no, 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 no. I think you got it wrong. I happen to know the facts of what you're talking about, 
and that's not what was said, or that's not what happened, or that's not what went down. Not only I know, but there's a couple others that are witnesses that know about this. So number three, call that person out and set the story straight. Number four, tell the person that they need to confront the person they're talking about. Don't tell it to me. Don't tell it to us. Tell it to the person that you're talking about. You've got a problem with them. It's not my business. It's you and that person's business. You're telling them to do what's according to Matthew 18, 15 through 20, what we just read. So now what if it's unknown to be true or not? You, you don't know if what they're saying is true or not. This is what you do. Number one, you must not jump to conclusions. Number two, you must speak to the person in question before spreading the story. So if somebody's telling a group of people about another person, I'm not to jump to conclusions no matter what they say. I'm to later go to that person and say, hey, this is what I heard. This is what so-and-so said. Is this true? So you must speak to the person in question before spreading the story. Number three, your personal motives must be pure in doing so. And again, it's not for self-justification or elevation of social status or for revenge or ridicule or whatever. Your motives must be pure in doing so. Number four, you must not cause the person to suffer in excess of what they deserve. You know, there's people that just rub salt in the wound. I mean, usually when people do something wrong, they feel like crap anyway. They're already beating themselves up. You know, case in point, somebody who has been clean and sober for three years, and all of a sudden they just had a really bad day, their girlfriend broke up with them, their dog died, and they wrecked their car, and identity fraud, and they're like, man, screw this, I'm going to get wasted. So they go, and they shoot up, they drink up, and then they, they, they're like, oh, crap, what did I just do? And they just feel like crap. You knew better than that. Why didn't you trust Jesus? You know, no, don't kick the person while they're down. Don't rub salt in the wound. Say, look, yeah, what you did was wrong. And I'm not here to judge and I'm not here to rub salt in the wound. I know that you're beating yourself up. Talk about grace and forgiveness. That that person, that person feels like they can never gain the ground that they just lost. That's the way they feel. They feel like they can never get back to where they are. They fell too far below and they'll never get back. You need to, show, you need to tell them otherwise. So you must not cause the person to suffer in excess of what they deserve. Number five, if spoken, it must be spoken and stated publicly and not as a whisper campaign. So uh, those are the rules of engagement when it comes to what you can talk about and if there's something that really needs to be addressed and said. So again, let's kind of go back over what it says in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Now, if your brother or sister, that for that matter, sins against you, go and show them their fault while you're with him alone. Now, when you're wronged, you're usually on the defensive and you want to march in there and say, you did me wrong. Well, if you go in with that attitude, that person is going to be on the defensive and they're going to they're going to be in a fighting mood and you're not going to get anything settled. You're just going to get into an argument and make the situation worse. What you do is you just go and say, hey, can I take you out for a coffee? There's something that I really need to talk to you about. There's something that's really bugging me, something that's on my heart and mind. I'm, to be honest with you, I'm upset with you because I, you know, something happened. So let's talk about it. And when you come in a peaceful way like that and you're in a public forum like a coffee shop, then you're less likely to engage in, you know, the pointing the fingers and the shaking the fist and throwing the stuff off the table and getting all mad and 
you know, get into fists, right? So it says, now if your brother or sister sins against you, go and show him his fault while you are with him alone. Now again, show him his fault. It's got to be fact. It's not, it can't be something you perceive. You perceived he did you wrong. It's got to be factual because then you're making a false accusation against the person. The person's like, no, that's not what I meant. No, that's not what, he, what, he, what I even said. Go to the person and show them their fault while you're with them alone. If he listens to you, then you have won your brother, okay? You say you're sorry, you shake hands, you pray, you hug, you kiss it out, and it's all good. But if he doesn't listen to you, no, I'm still justified in what I said and did. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the pastor says. I don't care what you say. Then you are to take two or more with you. Again, that's two people that are not involved or know about the conflict. People that are unbiased, therefore they're not going to be on your side or their side. They're going to be impartial judges. And basically they're just there to listen. They're really not there to get involved. They're there to remember and see what each other said so that if things start happening, you can set the story straight. No, no, no. That's not what he said. No, that's not what happened. And again, take a phone, record the conversation. But if he doesn't listen, take with you one or two more so that by every mouth, uh, by every mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word stand. And again, make it in such a way that it is not a confrontational situation. Because if you have three people approaching, it looks like they're getting ganged up on. So go to a neutral place, like go for a cup of coffee, go out to eat, and have these other people along, go out to a park, some public place, and just say, hey, you know, we're just here to try to straighten out. We're not here to, you know, gang up on you or anything like that. But if he refuses to listen to them, now again, you guys must be in the right biblically. You must have all the facts. You must be able to quote chapter and verse of why what they said or did is wrong and how they did you wrong and that they're not listening to you and they're not willing to repent. This has got to be a black and white type of issue here. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell Messiah's community, then you bring it to your congregation. So if it happens at Harvest House, you bring it to Aaron and whoever else the leaders and the elders are, which would probably be like myself or Chum or, you know, or whoever. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell Messiah's community. And then that way, the elders can sit down and say, look, okay, us three are going to get out of the situation and we're going to let them decide. So it's almost like a court case where the, the offended person gets to tell their side and then you and the two or three witnesses get to tell your side. You get to show the evidence of the phone and then they make the decision. That way it doesn't seem like you're self-righteous and it doesn't, you know, so the other person shouldn't feel like that they're being treated unfairly because they're getting a fair trial, so to speak. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to Messiah's community. And if he refuses to listen to even Messiah's community, let him be to you as a pagan or a tax collector. In other words, a pagan is somebody that you don't go bowling with. You don't go out to eat with. You don't have coffee with. You don't rub shoulders with. Why? Because you hate them? No, you just don't have anything in common. A tax collector. A tax collector back then was a traitor. A tax collector was a Jewish person that was selling out their own people, the Jewish people, to the Roman government by taking taxes for Rome, but also taking their cut and share, stealing from their brothers and sisters. They're a thief. They're a traitor. So treat them like a traitor. In other words, you don't want to be in 10 foot of that person. Again, you don't spread rumors about them. You don't treat them bad. You don't badmouth them. You don't tell bad things about them to other people. And you don't treat them harshly. If you see them in public, you know, just a polite nod or whatever, or hi or whatever, 
maybe casual chit chat, nice weather, whatever, but you don't hang out with them. You don't call them on the phone. You don't because you have nothing in common because the issue has not been resolved. They've refused to repent. And because you kick them out, it's not that you're being mean and being all high and mighty and righteous. You're kicking them out. And basically, it's, it's kind of the principle of a child being sent to the room. Why does a child, why does a parent send a child to the room? Usually, you need to go to your room so you can think about what you've done. It's so they can be alone and not be around the people and they can miss that fellowship, miss that camaraderie, miss the, the sermons, miss the worship. And they get to think about what they did and why they're in this situation and why nobody wants to talk to them. And either one of two things are going to happen. Either they're going to go further into rebellion or they're going to say, man, I really screwed up and I need to make it right. And they need to humble themselves and come back and, you know, approach you and say, look, you know, I was a real jerk. I'm really sorry you were right. You know, let's go to let's go to the elders and, you know, I want to show them that I'm sorry and that I'm repentant and everything. And you work it out and then you restore them back to the community because the goal is not to kick somebody out. That's not the goal. When you kick somebody out, the goal is to ultimately bring them back and restore them to fellowship, restore them back to where they were, back as a brother and sister. But that's the ball's in their court. That's their decision. That's not your decision. You can't force them to repent. You can't force them to come back. That's their decision. But if they do, you welcome them back with open arms and you work things out. And there is a trial period where the person kind of has to prove themselves, right? You know, that they're truly sorry and truly repentant. And they've got to kind of work kind of work back up in a sense, but you, you immediately accept them and forgive them because that's what it's all about is about forgiveness. And we talked about this morning in the group that I met with this morning about, you know, four times, four different situations, the children of Israel and various people within the community rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And it said that each time they fell on their face, they didn't fall on their face out of fear. Oh Lord, save us from this mob. They didn't fall on their face and say, God, strike them down, get them. They fell on their face and said, Lord, forgive these people. They have no idea what they're doing. Forgive them. Help, help give, me, give us wisdom to work this situation out because we don't want to see anybody hurt. So that should always be our heart is, is, is repentance, restoration, forgiveness. I mean, Yeshua, Jesus was the ultimate example. I mean, people kicked him, beat him whipped him until his body was just raw hamburger meat. They thrust a crown of thorns on him. They ripped out his beard. They, they stripped him naked. And they put him on a splintery wooden cross and nailed him there. I don't know about you. I wouldn't be in a forgiving mood if that happened to me. But yet he was hanging on that cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They have no idea what they're doing. See, we need to see people that offend us not as our enemies, but we need to see them as victims. What are they victims of? They're victims of being puppets of the devil because the enemy is messing with their heart and their mind, making them think and say and do things they probably normally wouldn't do. And they're greater victims than you when you're offended by them. Our whole nation is suffering because of the stupid boneheaded decisions of certain politicians in Canada and the United States. My flesh wants to get mad at these people and dislike them and say, God, get them. But you know what? God loves them just as much as he loves me. I'm probably going to offend a lot of people right now. And remember, I'm Jewish. 
God loved Adolf Hitler as much as he loved me. God loved Judas, who betrayed Jesus, just as much as he loved me. That's sobering and humbling to think about. He loves Jeffrey Dahmer and Charles Manson as much as he loved me. And these people did wicked, horrible, atrocious things. But he said, I'm not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He wants everybody to be saved. He loves everybody. Why? Because he created them. He loves his creation. He loves his, his people, even though they do bad things. So if God is willing to forgive and God loves them, how much more should we love and forgive people that do us wrong and see them as the victims, not us? I'm not going to play the victim card. I'm not a victim of anybody. Somebody who does something to me, they're the victim because they're letting the enemy rule and run their life and say and do things they probably normally wouldn't do under normal circumstances. And, see, when, and, and I'm telling you, I have such a hard time being in that mindset and, and thinking that way. Because my instinct is God get them. That's my instinct. Because I want them to be paid back because they hurt me. And it's really hard to be humble and say, oh, Lord. See, in my prayer, I got a prayer journal. In my prayer journal, I've got a list of people I don't like. The people, I don't, I don't say that I hate them. I don't hate anybody. But people I don't like. Regular Joes, politicians, and famous people. And it is one of the most humbling and hardest things to do to go down that list and genuinely pray for those people that God would touch them, that he would convict them, that they would repent, that they would come to know the Lord, that they would reverse the evil things they're doing. Because my instinct is, Lord, take them out. That's one less evil person in the world. That's one less bonehead doing stupid stuff to ruin everything for everybody else. But ultimately, God is in charge of that. I'm not the judge, jury, and executioner. God is. My job is to forgive them. My job is to love them. My job is to pray for their salvation. And whether they come to salvation or not, that's on them. Boy, that's a rabbit trail I didn't mean to, to go down. Okay, so now, what if you are the guilty party? What if you are the one who's a gossiper? What should you do? All right, so number one, you should repent and confess your sin and receive forgiveness from God. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you memorize any verse, that's a verse I recommend you memorize. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, I'm going to try to find the passage that I want to read next here. Um, in James. Okay, James chapter 5. So, okay, number one, repent, confess, and receive forgiveness from God, 1 John 1, 9. Number two, confess your sin to all you spread the gossip or slander to. Ooh, that's a hard one. That's humbling. That's admitting you're wrong. But that's the definition of true repentance. If I'm truly sorry, I'm not just going to say I'm sorry. I'm going to try to right the wrong, and I'm going to confess what I did. So James 5.16 says, uh, where are we here? Okay. So confess your offenses to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person is very power powerful. 
Now, all right, let's read that again. So confess your offenses to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. It's implying that the gossiper and the slanderer is sick. And maybe they are sick because if you remember, back in the biblical times, if you gossip or slandered somebody, you got leprosy. That's according to Numbers chapter 12, where Miriam, Moses' sister, badmouthed and talked behind Moses' back and about his wife, and she got leprosy. We may not get leprosy today, but we may get other sicknesses and other ailments. Because it says that if you are sick, you are to call for the elders of the church and they are to anoint you with oil. And it says whatever sins that you have committed will be forgiven and you'll be healed, implying that there are certain sins that cause certain sicknesses. So it says, so confess your offenses one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person is very powerful. So repent, uh, confess and receive God's forgiveness. Number two, confess your sin to all you spread the gossip or slander to. Go to that person and say, look, I said this about you and I was wrong and I'm sorry and please forgive me. Number three, sorry is not enough. You must make things right. And for that, I want to go to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19. Everybody still with me? You still hanging in there? All right. Mark, or Luke chapter 19. Now Yeshua entered Jericho and was passing through. And here was a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. You remember that children's song? Maybe, maybe some of you. It says, Now Yeshua entered Jericho and was passing through, and there he saw a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, which meaning, meaning he was a Jewish trader. He was a traitor to the Jewish people. He was collecting taxes from Rome and stealing from his own brothers and sisters, his fellow Jews. He was a chief. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief mucky muck. He was the big kahuna. He was the chief tax collector, and he was very rich. He was rich because he stole from other people. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Yeshua was, but he couldn't because of the crowds, for he was a short in height. So he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree, which is a species of fig, by the way, to see Yeshua, for he was about to pass through that way. When Yeshua came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today, which blew the socks off of everybody around him. What? This righteous rabbi, Yeshua, this Jesus, is going to... Go eat with this traitor, this chief tax collector. Zacchaeus hurried and came down and welcomed him joyfully. But when everybody saw it, they began to grumble and say, Yeshua has gone to the guest of a sinner? But Zacchaeus stood there and he said to the Lord, Look, master, half of my possessions I give to the poor. And if I have somehow cheated anyone, I will repay them four times as much. That's more than just Zacchaeus saying, uh, look, Yeshua, I'm sorry for being a tax collector. I'm sorry for being a traitor to the Jewish people. I'm sorry for stealing. Oh, that's okay, Zacchaeus. No, Zacchaeus knew that sorry wasn't good enough. So he, to show, to prove he was sorry, to prove his repentance, he made the wrongs right. He said, look, master, 
Half of my possessions I give to the poor. In other words, this is stuff that he owned legitimately, things that he didn't steal. And he said, if I have somehow cheated anyone, I repay him four times as much. Where did he get that number? Did he just pull it out of his butt? I'm just saying four times as much. No, Zacchaeus was a Jew. He grew up as a little boy in Hebrew school. He knew the five books of Moses backwards and front. And it said that if you cheated or stole from somebody, you have to give them back four times as much. That's where he got that from. He was obeying scripture. He was obeying the law of Moses. He was obeying the Torah. So he says, I will repay them four times as much. And that's found in Exodus chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 4. Then Yeshua said to him, today salvation has come to this home. In other words, this guy's forgiven. This guy is saved, not because he said he's sorry, but because he righted the wrong. He proved his, his, his sorriness by repenting and making the wrong right. Today salvation has come to this home because he is a son of Abraham. In other words, just because he's a tax collector doesn't mean he lost his Jewishness. He may have lost his way, but he's still a child of Abraham, and now he's come back home just like the prodigal son. Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And they were listening to this. Yeshua went on to tell a parable. And because he was near Jerusalem, and okay, we'll just shut her down there. Okay. So that's number three. Sorry isn't enough. You must make things right. Number four, if you're the gospel, the guilty party, make it right with the one you've offended. As it says in Matthew 18 that we just read, Matthew 18, where it says, go to that offended brother and make things right. So. What are our tongues for? Proverbs 18.21 says, Life and death is in the power of the tongue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same was the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him there was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. So God spoke, let there be light. He spoke everything that we see into creation. He created life with His words. And we are created in his, his image. We can cause life and death by our words. I can say, hey, great job, and you feel great. Hey, I love you. I missed you. Oh, you feel great. Boy, what was your stupid? What were you thinking? Now you feel this big. I wish you were never born. That's, that's death. You're speaking death to that person. So you see how you can speak life and death? Life and death is in the power of the tongue. So James which is actually Yeshua's half-brother, Jesus' half-brother, he had a lot to say about the tongue and about our speech. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, since you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways, and if someone does not stumble in speech, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body as well. And if we put bits in the mouth of horses to make them obey us, and we guide their whole body as well, See also ships, though they are very large, they're driven by the strong winds, and they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. See how small a fire set ablaze, so great a forest? The tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of evil placed among our body parts, and it pollutes the whole body and sets on fire the entire course of life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast, birds and reptiles and sea creatures is tamed. We've tamed lions, bears, shamu, you know, killer whales, falcons. 
and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless God, or we bless Adonai and the Father, right? We're in service. You know, oh, I love you, Lord, and we're singing praise and worship, and we're feeling so good, and we feel the glory bumps, and we're praising God with our lips, and at the end of the service, we go out for a smoke, and we're talking about somebody. Oh, yeah, well, you know what so-and-so put on Facebook the other day, and blah, 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 blah. Seems out of place, doesn't it? With it, we bless Adonai, our Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's image. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be. A spring doesn't pour out fresh and bitter water from the same opening, does it? It's not like when you were in school and you went to the water fountain. You were, it wasn't like Russian roulette and you were like, oh, gee, I wonder if sewage is going to come out of this this time. No, you always knew it was going to be good water, except for that kid who sucked on the spout and you always want to slap him in the head. Anyway... <laughs> You know it's going to be fresh water coming out of that spigot. And so that's like our mouth. You know, it shouldn't have bitter and, and, and sweet things coming out at the same time. It just doesn't make sense. A spring does not pour out fresh and bitter water from the same opening, does it? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh water. So it's talking about the tongue and how inconsistent and contradictory it can be. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, encourage one another and build up one another as you are already doing. That's what we should be doing with our tongue, building up instead of tearing down. And even when you have to criticize somebody, you've heard of the term constructive criticism. When you're criticizing them, you're doing it in such a way that you're actually building them up while you're correcting them. And that's an art form that we've kind of lost. So I also want to read to you what Paul said in Ephesians because he had some things to say about the tongue and about speech. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 15. So pay close attention to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. Make the most of your time because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is reckless. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking, here's what we need to do with our tongues, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord. We need to be communicating with, with each other through scripture, through songs, through positive things. Verse 20, always giving thanks for everything. Really? giving thanks for everything, even when I get a flat tire and I'm on the side of the road changing the flat tire in the rain and somebody drives by and splashes water from a puddle on me, I need to be thankful? Yes! Where do you get that? You never know that maybe having that flat tire may have saved you from a car accident a couple miles up the road. And you know what? Getting wet and muddy is worth, is worth it rather than losing my life, rather than being in the hospital in a coma or losing a limb. So it says, always give thanks for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord, Yeshua, the Messiah. And 1 John, and we'll end with this scripture reading. 1 John 4, 7 through 8. Loved ones, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
The one who does not love God, or the one who does not, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The love of God was revealed among us by this, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atonement for our sins. Loved ones, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has, okay, we'll stop right there. It's like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You don't want anybody speaking smack or disrespecting you in any way, so don't do it to other people. Plain and simple as that. Just as grandma said, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? So hopefully uh, the last two times we've met in this series of taming the tongue or guarding the tongue, hopefully it has really helped you in your uh, walk with the Lord. So uh, does anybody have any questions? sometimes after that, you know, people may have some questions. All right, clear as mud. We'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the instructions in your word. That there's no question that we have that is not somehow, someway answered in your word. Even Bigfoot and aliens? Yes, we can, we can talk about that through the scripture. But Lord, even the most simple things of life such as how are we to, to talk, how are, how are we to dress, how are we to live, how are we to work, how are, you, how are we to relate to other people? You know, what do we do in this situation? What do we do in that situation? The Bible is our basics, basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. It is our life manual, our instruction manual, our, our guide through this world. And we thank you for your word. And your word is living and active. It's not like Moby Dick. It's not like Shakespeare. There's something deeper, something spiritual, something real, something deep about it that changes us from the inside out when we read it and apply it to our lives. So we thank you for your life-giving word. It is our spiritual bread and butter. It is our spiritual food. Give us a hunger and a thirst. More for your word than Netflix. More for your word than Spotify. More for your word than keeping up with the Kardashians. More for your word than any other thing that's out there. Machine Gun Kelly or whoever, that we will hunger after your word because it is truth, it is life, it is sustaining. All this other stuff is fad. All this other stuff, nobody's going to remember it in 10 years. All this other stuff is here today and gone tomorrow. <clears throat> it's just the latest flavor of the month. But your word is real and it's eternal. Even though it was written thousands of years ago, it's still relevant for today because it addresses our human nature, which has never changed since the fall. So, Lord, give us your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word, to teach us what your word means so we can apply it to our lives. We love you and we praise you and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.